The Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky once wrote that the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. While the state and size of the American prison system has long been a mark of shame, the conditions under which incarcerated Americans live have been particularly egregious during the COVID-19 pandemic. On today's show, we talk with an advocate for those incarcerated Ohioans that, as our guest argues, have been both largely forgotten, but also in being forced to remain in Ohio's packed prisons, are living in dangerous and even deadly conditions. This is Prognosis Ohio, a WCBE-affiliated podcast. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. According to the Marshall Project, a nonprofit effort undertaken in partnership with the Associated Press, which is collecting data on COVID-19 infections in state and federal prisons, 86 prisoners have died in Ohio since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, making Ohio's prisons the third most deadly per capita in the United States, just behind Texas and New Jersey. For context, this is just 10 deaths shy of the total number of federal prisoners who have died during the same time, and the federal system is, as you would expect, a far larger one. Based on known cases, and I say known because what we know depends on what we test and what we're told, the number of known cases in Ohio's prisons is 1,957% higher than Ohio's overall numbers. Let that sink in for a minute. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we've heard about how miserable and dangerous conditions have been in Ohio's prisons. A few episodes back, on our episode on nursing with folks from the Ohio State University's College of Nursing, we honored the life of Bernard Ada, a nurse who died in the service of caring for prisoners at Ohio's Corrections Reception Center. So what's behind the unacceptably high COVID-19 transmission and death rates in Ohio's prisons? Well, to start, as our guest, Chazity Bowman of the Ohio Prisoners Justice League explains, keeping a highly infectious disease from spreading in prisons operating at the capacities for which they are built is one thing, but Ohio's prisons are currently way over capacity. At one point a few months ago, as many as 73% of prisoners at the Marion Correctional Facility tested positive. Social distancing is an impossibility in prisons packed beyond capacity, and basic supplies such as hand sanitizer, but also other things, as we'll hear, are hard to come by. While there was talk of releasing some prisoners early to create more space and stem COVID-19 circulation in Ohio's prisons, Governor DeWine failed to take the aggressive action that prison advocates argued his duty to protect incarcerated Ohioans would have required. In other words, to return to Dostoevsky, a look inside Ohio's prisons gives us a snapshot of a society that is not only locked up a large percentage of its citizens, a population that is also disproportionately black and brown, but also a state that is unwilling to take basic steps to protect that population during a virulent public health crisis. As you listen to the episode, please keep in mind that while the culture and economy of incarceration in the United States is well known, it's important to remember that when a state locks up an individual, that person becomes their responsibility to keep safe, to keep healthy, and to keep alive. If, as our guest argues, Ohio's approach to COVID-19 and its prisons is akin to a death sentence, then we have a major injustice on our hands and one that our guest and her allies work daily to address. As always, before turning to my conversation with our guest, I'd like to remind you to please subscribe to Prognosis Ohio wherever you get your podcasts, and consider following us on Twitter and Instagram, friending us on Facebook, etc., etc. If you have ideas for show themes or interviews, please don't hesitate to email us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. 
And as you may know, we also have a Patreon account. We really appreciate those of you who've shown your support for the podcast by becoming patrons. It's really helpful to us, especially as we hope to take some big steps in the coming months to make this show a bit more of a professional and a sustainable operation. Also, to sweeten the deal, all patrons will receive t-shirts when we have our first live event in Columbus, hopefully this fall. So keep that in mind. They're going to be really cool and colorful t-shirts. But more than the giveaways and extras, we will use any money we bring in to make the show better, to reach further, and to improve the quality. Visit patreon.com slash prognosisohio to chip in $3 a month and become a Prognosis Ohio Patreon. That's patreon.com prognosisohio. And thanks. Okay, and now to our conversation with Chazity Bowman, mother, wife, and criminal justice activist of the Ohio Prisoners Justice League. Chazity Bowman, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I came across the work that you do. Um, I caught some some tweets. I think I've learned a lot about this kind of work you've been doing. I have to just say, uh, for the last uh, three months, I've been trying to do a show um, on the effects of COVID nineteen and incarcerated uh, people in our state. Um, you know, I've reached out to the unions. It's it's a hard nut to crack. And I, I wonder if you could just start by telling us a little bit about what the Ohio Prison Justice League does and, you know, a little bit about who you are. How did it start? Sure. So uh, as you said, I'm Chastity Bowman. I am the founder of Ohio Prisoners Justice League. And then I also have a co-founder. Her name is Teresa Rogers. And my husband is currently incarcerated and her son is currently incarcerated. So we were just a few women um, facing a giant called COVID-19 and a pandemic inside the prisons that affected our loved ones. And so what we what we began to notice is that it was spreading very quickly and no one was paying very much attention to how fast it was spreading. Um, we were receiving reports from Department of Corrections and the governor, but it was very different from what we were experiencing and seeing with inside the prisons. So we created Ohio Prisoners Justice League to bring awareness about COVID-19 inside the prisons and the neglect that um, the governor and the, de- and the Department of Corrections were showing towards the incarcerated people in trying to be proactive concerning the, the virus. So we've heard, you know, in the media, we, we've heard about outbreaks at many facilities, you know, including in Franklin, Marion, Pickaway and Toledo counties. Um, at one point in April, I believe there was you know, more than 70 percent of the prisoners at a facility in Marion County uh, tested positive for COVID-19. So but most of the media, from what I can tell, has seemed to focus on the risk facing corrections officers, which I don't want to downplay. I, we, we care about anybody getting sick. And of course, anybody getting sick in a prison is a tinderbox for the whole prison to get sick. But I haven't heard as much about prisoners. And and that's not surprising because in the United States, um, we tend to not think about the health and well-being of prisoners. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. So I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about, you know, what do you, to, to what do you chalk up this this uh, this phenomenon of um, prisoners dying and prisoners getting sick in the prisons. Let's just start with the basic idea. Why why do you think this is a specifically important issue, and why do you think this is happening disproportionately within prisons? It is a specifically important issue because 
what people fail to realize is first, um, as you were saying, the focus is solely on correctional officers. I think that the reason they put that they put the focus there is try to deflect from the the bigger um the broader audience that we should be concerned about, which is 49,000 prisoners. So if they can just keep the focus on the 6,000 correctional officers, as opposed to 49,000 people, um, then it doesn't make the problem look as, as large as it is. The reason why this is important is what people fail to understand is these prisoners were in quarantine. They were considered quarantined. The virus was brought into the prisons by the essential workers. So here's the issue that we're having. When you have, whether you have open bay facilities, which could be just a gym, think of a high school gym with about 400 bunk beds in it and people only four four feet apart, um, that can spread very quickly. And it did. So what happens is, is the correctional officers go in, your airmark workers go in, your administrative workers go in, and this this virus is is it's, it has contaminated a facility of let's say sixteen hundred people in Toledo County, right? It is it has contaminated sixteen hundred people, and then your your essential workers go in, and then they come back out to the public, and then they're in our grocery stores, they're in our in our gyms, they're you know they're in our daycares around our their children around our children. That's why this is an imminent, um, it's an imminent danger, and it's a public health crisis. So, you know, it occurs to me that one of the reasons why we've probably heard a good deal about the corrections officer situation is because they have representation, right? They have a, a group that advocates for them. And of course, um, you know, people like you, people who uh, have family members or loved ones or friends or, you know, people they care about or even just advocates and allies, um, you know, prisoners depend on those folks to step up to do that work because it's not an organized thing like a, like a union, for example. Right. What, one of the, you know, um, things that caught my eye that you said in the media, um, is that the Ohio, uh, prison system is incapable of protecting people. And, you know, as a political scientist, I just make sure, make sure my listeners know, I mean, um, when a, when the state takes a prisoner, they take responsibility for caring for a prisoner, including providing for the health of that person. Um, so incapable is a strong word, of course. Um, I wonder if unwilling is in there in some way too, but what, what kinds of things are you thinking about and framing it in terms of like, they are incapable of doing this work? Well, the reason why I use that word strongly and is because they do that to themselves. They, they, they make themselves incapable um, and when I say they make themselves incapable is because they do not provide the necessities for these men and women across Ohio to protect themselves. They charge for medicine. They have taken um, they, the hand sanitizers away, anything with aloe in it so they could they could make hand sanitizer. They're taking it away. They were taking soap away. I know in Lebanon, they don't even have access to showers. So... That's what makes them incapable. They do that to themselves. They put themselves in that position to where the CDC is telling civilian civilians to take these different precautions, but it does not 
um, the same standard is not held for prisoners. And so that's what our organization does. We, we try to expose all these things and bring awareness to the public as to say, hey, you know, I know life has went back as to normal as you know it, but there's still 49,000 people who are very sick and have contracted this um, disease more than once. So when you say that, you know, things like hand sanitizer, I mean, all of these things that we have talked about over the last three and a half months, um, those who are not incarcerated, you know, things like that were scarce that we needed, like hand sanitizer, like masks, like any kind of protective gear. You know, is your sense that these things are being taken away? And what are you what are you hearing is the rationale for this? Is are these things being denied to prisoners because there is a claim that somehow this is posing a risk within the prison, or is this just punitive? Or what is the sense uh, from you talking to your husband or talking to others uh, on the inside um, about why this is happening? Can I be candid in that answer, please? Um, because it's something that I, that people should know. Um, we within within my organization and talking to my husband and thousands of other men that are incarcerated and women, they feel like they want them to die. They feel like they want them to die, and and over the last 120 days, I could say that that's valid. You know, um, when my husband calls home and he says, Chastity, you know, we did, they, they, they weren't allowing us to get hand sanitizer. Now we have to pay $5 for a two ounce bottle, $5 for a two ounce bottle of hand sanitizer. Now they've taken that away. Uh, we had Irish spring soap with aloe in it. And so we were breaking it down to make sanitizer. Now they've taken everything that contains aloe. Um, now they've taken soap that lathers away. Um, so it's like, we feel like they're trying to kill us. And so it creates a panic inside the prisons as well as with loved ones, because it's like you're the director of prisons is on the um, press conference with the governor. And she's saying that they have access to soap and hand sanitizer and all. And, and we're like, no, that's not true. And so it creates a sense of, it creates a sense of, it's just like a lot of lies are being told and there's no help being given. I mean, one of the most powerful things that you do with your organization, aside from constantly contacting the prisons themselves and and applying pressure, um, is this very basic thing of there seems to be two different narratives, right? There's the official narrative. And then when you talk to people on the inside, when you talk to incarcerated people like your husband, but others, then you get a different side of the story. And um, something like a prison is very hard to get information out of that's kind of built into it. Uh, when we talk about who's advocating for people in nursing homes or who's advocating for people in you know schools and things like that, information flows much more readily. So um, you know, I guess what 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 kind of, you're hearing this kind of uh, this this flow of information from people who are living this life. Do you think that this is? made a conscious misrepresentation? Um, do you think that it's possible that the people who run Ohio's prisons actually don't know what's going on in there? H how do you make sense of this, like these two different channels that information is flowing on? I believe that there is a standard set across the board, but I believe that each facility, each warden has their own set of rules. And I say that because we've collected data from 
well, we started collecting the data in May, but for what we're seeing, there's there were different rules set at different prisons. And so I think what happened was ODRC set a common standard across the board, but then they allowed each facility to modify the standard that they had set. So Toledo, we may see, which is a level four facility, which is a maximum security facility. So there's only uh, one person per cell. So in Toledo, they may have gotten commissary um, and their commissary may not have stopped. But then you have Ross, which is a level three, and then their commissary stopped because they didn't want to bring anything from the outside in. Um, to that was contaminated. So the reason why I say commissary is because the importance of the commissary is the men and women were ordering vitamins and medicine from commissary in order to stay well. They weren't offered that from the facilities. So that became a problem. So it was just different standards set at different prisons. So I think you're right. They weren't aware of what was going on because there wasn't a uniform plan that everybody was going uh, going along with at all 28 facilities. Each facility had a different plan. Yeah, and here we are, you know, those of us who are not incarcerated have been watching things like price gouging with hand sanitizer. You know, the, the, the things have become kind of the nuts and bolts of our daily life to keep us safe, to keep us from contracting covid Price gouging has been happening in prisons for a long time. Yes. Right. I mean, they've been, you know, whether it's the the the, the cost of a phone call to one's family, and I know those costs have been passed on to the families themselves mostly. The idea that these nuts and bolts things, that these basic um, supplies are not being provided, but are being sort of sent through the commissary system, just shows that there's cost shifting going on, even around something like containing or um, you know, a pandemic or just you know, protecting prisoners, right? right. So I want to talk a little bit about health generally just for a minute, because I'm sure most of our listeners um, don't know a- about the situation within U.S. prisons. So before COVID-19, you know, or just things that don't have to do specifically with the coronavirus, Is it your sense that um, the ability to see clinicians, uh, physicians, physician assistants, nurses um, is, is, you know, decently well run or is, is, are there problems there that you've heard about as well? Um, I mean, they don't get the best care, you know, that they do not. Uh, Even before, you know, all of this, because my husband has been incarcerated for um, six and a half years. And so, Within the last four years, I've been advocating inside the prisons before the pandemic came. And so a lot of the complaints that we were seeing is, you know, something as small as an abscess tooth, you know, they have to live with it. Or if they get it pulled, they may be on a waiting list for four to six months just to get a tooth pulled and, it, and it'll happen and they won't have any kind of medication, uh, minimal anesthesia. I think it may be a local anesthesia that they give for it. And that's just an example. Uh, My husband has asthma, so he's supposed to have chronic care. Uh, He has severe asthma, actually, and he's supposed to have chronic care three times a month. He may receive it once a month, you know, and during the pandemic, he hasn't received it at all. Which is, by the way, particularly galling, considering that um, somebody with asthma or any kind of respiratory issue are 
at extremely high risk with COVID-19. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was speaking to a lady and her grandfather was incarcerated. He had been incarcerated for 30 plus years and he had a CPAP machine. And as you know, how CPAP machines go, you have, they have to be clean mm-hmm. and it hadn't been cleaned in three weeks. Ugh. Um, and so we were advocating, trying to get, I'm like, come on, this is a CPAP machine. You know, I mean, how, how hard is it to get him some sterile water, sanitized water, just to clean the CPAP machine? Like I'm a common citizen. I shouldn't have to call the prison every single day to get him assistance with his CPAP machine. Like does not anybody notice this? You have nursing staff at your facility. You have an infirmary at the facility and nobody can do this. So we were seeing um, poor health care before the pandemic and it's gotten worse since then. And that's a nice segue in a way to like a, a bigger issue in a way, um, which is, you know, just the system being overwhelmed itself. I mean, within the so-called prison industrial complex, right, that we have in the United States or just mass incarceration you know, during, during COVID-19, for example, keeping people apart is, as we see, social distancing is the strategy that our entire society is trying to employ to keep us as safe as possible right. within a prison that's hard in a normally uh you know filled prison but ohio prisons are running way above 100% uh capacity so even this this call to um re- relieve some of that pressure to create a little bit more space i know i want to talk to you about that in a moment but the goal there is just to say we 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 need to create a system that can actually take care of the people within them but also physically we need people to have enough space to be able to just not be up against each other constantly how do you think about those issues though the overcrowding issue the promise that the governor and others had made to at least consider um, early release in some cases as a public health measure um so the prisons right now are at 127% over capacity. And when we crunched the numbers down and we were just asking for the 27%, if he would just give us the 27%, um, one, it would help the budget. Um, because I know he was saying that he would have to go into the rainy day fund. As we know, he cut $750 million from healthcare and education. If he would give us the 27% released, and when I'm saying these 27%, they're already coming home in less than two years. Mm-hmm. If he would relieve the system of the 27%, it would save the state $500 million. If he would relieve the 27%, it will allow, it will be at 100% capacity, but it would allow these men and women to space out and practice some sense of social distancing to be able to contain and eliminate the virus within the facilities and the resistance that we are seeing with the governor is so astonishing. And it's almost to the point to where as advocates, we are just like, we're begging, we're begging legislation. We're begging the governor. We're and the department of corrections. Their hands are tied, you know, so, but he will not give us any leeway at all. None. And it's amazing too. I mean, if we're going to lock people up at this rate in this country, in this state, you know, the idea that uh, reducing the the, the uh, number of prisoners by 27% would just get us to full, yes. right? I mean, we're not talking about having excess space, but also that would get us to a point where we could actually maybe have the staff that we have in place 
able to do things like get a clean CPAP machine, yes. right? So you know we're not we're not talking about um, you know taking apart prisons, right? We're just talking about getting them to full and to a capacity that's manageable. And also just aside from all the other considerations within uh, corrections facilities, I mean, just the public health design of these places can't handle overcapacity. And we're seeing that firsthand. Yes, we are. And and not to mention that um, St. Joseph Hospital in Warren County um, is at capacity right now with prisoners that mm. have COVID. And so, um, one of my advocates, she's actually a nurse there and she, she called me last night. She was very upset. She was like, listen, somebody has to tell this because we are, we are over capacity. We can't take in any more patients. We, we have all prisoners and then we're, that's going to spread throughout the hospitals in this network. Yeah. And, and so here's the thing that needs to be understood about that. We are already seeing, I think we said, not, I think the news said 9,000 more cases of COVID um, in the last few weeks. But just think of 49,000 people who have attracted this virus. There is one case in every single facility. Mm-hmm. And they're taking in new prisoners. From different counties, they have started taking in more people. So we're already overcapacitated. Now we're bringing in more people, and then they're coming from the public. They're coming from the county prisons. I mean, jails into the prisons. Hmm. So what has to happen in order for us to bring attention and awareness to this? To where people say, "Wait, we got to stop," because this is going to filter back. It's just it's going to do a vicious cycle. Right. And then, of course, as you mentioned, uh, you can conceptualize a prison itself as under quarantine in a certain way, but you have prison workers and all the administrative folks and healthcare workers and food services and all this kind of stuff flowing in and out. So, you know, this is not an issue that is just important for incarcerated people and their families, right? This is, this is a social issue because these, these facilities are in a way, um, like, capable of being so-called super spreaders, right? Incubating COVID-19 and then dispersing it back out into um, broader society. Yes, absolutely. Final question. Really, I just want to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about what are you doing? Um, What is your organization's plans moving forward um, and, you know, maybe anything that you want to share in terms of how people might be able to get involved, um, you know, is there something that they can be doing, reading to better understand uh, or advocating? Yes. So moving forward, uh, we continue our daily calls to each facility um, and we are constantly holding them accountable for the numbers. Um, how many cases do they have? And we're documenting all these things. Right now, we are working with um, a group of students from Ohio State University. We're doing an eight-week project, research project on COVID inside of the um, inside of the facilities. So we've come up with this questionnaire um, that we are sending inside of the prisons. And we're going to do this process for the next eight weeks. And then we're going to, once we get all the data back, 
we are going to try to put it in front of the IRB, you know, to get it, you know, certified as research that we can use to be able to get down to the bottom of it. So we are looking for people to help us with that eight week project. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually starting this week. So we're going to start getting it out um, into the prisons, into the hands of the prisoners and their loved ones this week. Um, You can find us on Facebook, Ohio Prisoners Justice League, and all the information about our eight-week project is there. Um, You can also reach out to me at Chazidy, C-H-A-Z-I-D-Y, O-P-J-L at gmail.com if you would like for me to email you a packet but we need as many hands as we can um, to get involved into this research project because I think it would bring a whole lot of light um, to what's happening inside of the facilities. I will be linking to all those um, the email and contact informations in our show notes, and I'll be sharing them on social media as well. And I do encourage people to reach out to you and to be in touch. Um, it's important work. Prisons are um, these uh, American, all too American institutions we've created with uh, mass incarceration and um, just understanding how you know this pandemic uh, interacts with with what we've created in our, our correction system is really important. And I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to do some of that work today. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you in the future and, and following your work. So thanks so much, Chazity, for being on the show. Thank you for having me and allowing... 49,000 voices to be heard. My thanks to Chazity Bowman for joining us on the show. You can find the Ohio Prisoners Justice League on Facebook, and we'll be linking to news stories and other resources in our show notes and on social media. There you can read one particular piece by our friends at the Ohio Capital Journal, which gives you some background on Chazity's husband's situation, as well as the situation with COVID-19 in the Toledo Correction Institution and Ohio prisons more generally. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner and Mark Franz. You can find show notes for this episode on WCBE's webpage at wcbe.org. It's under the podcast experience tab. Please take a minute to subscribe to Prognosis Ohio, follow us on Twitter at at Prognosis Ohio, and friend us on Facebook. As always, we encourage you to email us your suggestions and your feedback at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening and be well.